welcome to Back Talk. <laughs> I think that every time I do this, when I do the introduction, I'm just going to try to make Sarah laugh. <laughs> welcome to Back Talk, everybody. <laughs> this is like your 90s sitcom theme song introduction. Yeah, I'm like, I'm jumping and then kicking my heels, you know, right when I do that. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Back Talk. It's a conversation between two feminists talking about popular pop culture pop stuff of the week <laughs> i'm amy lamb the associate editor at bitch and um this week slash this month uh, one of the things that we're talking about at the office is we're trying to get folks to go to bitchmedia.org to take a survey so exciting maybe i should, I should <laughs> sing it so it sounds more exciting come to bitchmedia.org and take a survey i don't think that's helping <laughs> But I love, I love taking surveys. I will take a survey from anybody who asks about anything. I'm like, yes, I will tell you my opinion. And I think that the awesome part about this survey for us is that like your opinion helps us to improve. Right. This is a survey that's like, what should we be writing about in the next three years? What, What gaps are there in our coverage? What do you want to see more of us cover? Yes. And so it's, it's a really good way to help guide bitch over the next few years how much more off-key singing do you want from me uh please mention (laughs) it uh but (laughs) the survey is really helpful to us and then also a huge so sarah loves taking surveys just for the love of surveys i love taking surveys if there's an incentive and in this case there is you can win some amazing prizes um if you enter your, your like email address then you automatically get entered into some raffle thingy uh so please head over to bitchmedia.org and take the survey. And I'm Sarah Merck. I'm the online editor at Bitch, which means this week I've been spending a lot of time on the hashtag Reclaim Row, which is talking about entering the 2016 election, trying to really reclaim abortion rights and uh, the mission of Roe v. Wade, which is to make safe legal abortion accessible to everybody in the United States. Um, and so this the whole th- thing of Reclaim Row has been really interesting to me this week. I've been watching that hashtag a lot. Rad. All right, so we start off the show by talking about our favorite pop culture moments. Um, I can start. I can have I can have two because mm-hmm. one is a follow up. <laughs> I have a, a, an update about one of my favorite pop culture moments, and it was from I think last time we talked about the Mass Brothers controversy. Oh, the whole artisanal yeah. chocolate debacle. Right. And, and some of you listening might be like, well, this isn't very feministy, but it is. And I'm going to tell you why. Okay. And I told you why last time. Okay. So this is, okay. I'll just explain the situation yes. and you can tell me if I'm wrong. Okay. So there's these two white hipster bro- brothers living in Brooklyn who make fancy artisanal chocolate. And it was recently exposed that their fancy chocolate making system was not as authentic as they said it was they were using some other process that wasn't actually worth paying for they lied because they started they are a bean to bar company and when they started they didn't make true bean to bars they remelted what's called coverture they remelted other people's chocolates and sold them as theirs so what's the update on chocolate gate so i'm obsessed right okay so this is a so the the when we talked about it last time my feminist framing was it what of it was that like these two mediocre white guys decided to be like we're really good at this and tell everybody they were really good at it and everybody believed them mm-hmm. um because they have such luscious beards yes oh, God. And, and good branding authoritative beards uh so my so i was alerted to this last night so um this past monday was mlk day martin luther king jr day and you know all these companies do branded tweets to celebrate it which is kind of smarmy and gross mm-hmm 
but the Mass Brothers took the cake with it. Um, this is why, you know, when I went into journalism school, we had like uh, we had to take one of the prereqs was to take a PR class so we can learn about writing press releases and things like that, and also like know how to receive them so we can know how to talk to press folks. Um, I think that in in marketing or like public relations courses and things, there, there should be something that we learn about social justice as well, hmm. so you don't send out clueless awful branded tweets okay <laughs> so the mass brothers did it <laughs> um they tweeted and they also posted on their instagram a picture of like um looks like a storefront with like pallets of um, these sacks of their cacao beans and then behind it on the wall it says choose love like it's written in red letters mm -hmm. and then underneath it they have a quote from mlk it says quote i have decided to stick with love hate is too great a burden to bear so in this context with what's happening with the mass brothers they are comparing their fake bean to bar chocolates to violent systemic racism because they are they are like deciding to choose love like stop hating on us um you know we're just this lowly chocolate company like we're tired of all this negative pub publicity so we're going to use the words of martin luther king jr to tell you guys to reiterate that you should choose love and not hate there was so much discussion this mlk day about uh, people doing exactly this, taking MLK quotes out of context to use for whatever uh, they're selling or whatever point they're trying to make. Um, and so there was like a litany of examples of people just being able to take M Martin Luther King Jr. quotes and stick them on whatever product they're trying to sell and be like, look, Martin Luther King Jr. would have loved bean to bar chocolate. No. No, no, no. I mean, maybe he would have, but no, this is not cool. So that's my update of my pop culture okay, moment. And then my real pop culture favorite moment of the week is um, at the Critics' Choice Award, um, Master of None won for Best Comedy. Yay! Yes. And one of the best parts is um, the entire cast went up on stage to accept the award, and Ali Yang, uh, one of the co-creators and executive producers, says something really hilarious about um, how... Like he's grateful for the systemic like oppression of marginalized voices and how it made his show so fresh and new because like those voices have been oppressed for some time. Mm, yeah. So it's both like, I'm so glad we can be saying something new because we've been blocked out of being on TV for decades. Right. Here's a clip of it. Thank you to uh, thank you to all the straight white guys who dominated movies and TV so hard for so long that stories about anyone else seem kind of fresh and original now because you guys just crushed it for so long that anything else seems kind of kind of different um all right aziz you want to talk i love that show i'm so glad they're getting awards give them all the awards <laughs> <laughs> um, my favorite pop culture moment of the week um is that i um i just finished bojack horseman the show that's also on netflix like master of none netflix is killing it with their original programming by the way um bojack horseman is my new favorite tv show God, it's so good. It starts off a little, I wasn't that into it at first. I was like, oh, it's another show about like an egotistical guy. In this case, the guy is a horse, well, whatever. <laughs> uh, an egotistical guy who's like kind of misogynistic and his life is screwed up and he's feeling bad for himself. And I was like, you know, I've seen this show before. <laughs> Many times. Uh, but the show, as it evolves, just like every episode gets like darker and darker and more and more honest and vulnerable until... Um, pretty much everyone on the show has to like grapple with the real problems in their lives and face themselves for being the shit shows that they are. And it's really good. It's, it's really good with that and good at saying, you know, people are screwed up and depressed and make mistakes and can be bad sometimes. 
that's the way life is. So it's really a show that's you start off thinking it's going to be about this egotistical dude going through life, and actually it winds up being about failure and depression and uh, coping with the darkness. Wow, I I've been meaning to watch that show, but like, you know, a t- show about failure and depression that sounds amazing. It's with also horseman. really funny. Yeah, it's really really funny. And I also love Lisa Hanawalt's art. I love Lisa Hanawalt. Lisa Hanawalt yeah. is the production designer, and uh, she's a producer on the second season of the show, and she's the one who's. She's an artist whose look it really sets the look for the whole show. She draws these like really strange human animal creatures and somehow that's wound up being a TV show. It's awesome. She's so talented. Yeah, really talented. Um, so first up this week, we're going to talk about the Oscar nominations. And of course, if you've been paying attention to the news in the last week, you've seen that um, there's been a couple discussions about this. I feel like every year, pretty much, we write the same mm. piece about the Oscars, which is... Uh, the Oscars are super white and the Oscars are super male dominated where one, once the nominations came out last week, um, there was a lot of pushback um, from people saying every single person who's nominated for an, in, for as, an as an actor for best supporting actor, best supporting actress, supporting best main actor is white. Every single one. Like, 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 let that sink into your brain. Like in all of these categories, I think that what is it like 20 people? They're all white. Yeah. And um the New York Times had a really good point about this, where even the films that are um, centered around African-American stories, like Straight Outta Compton and Creed, the people who are nominated are white. The white people in the like the one white person in that film is like nominated for the award. Um, so like I was saying, pretty much every year we write the same article about like, wow, the Oscars are really screwed up again. But what I think what I think it's gets kind of missed here is people see this and they're like, oh, that's really screwed up. But it doesn't get connected back to like this is a symptom of systemic discrimination within the film industry, within every level of the film industry. People say the film industry is male dominated, but I don't think that we have gotten to the point where we're thinking about that in terms of what we're talking about here is 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 job discrimination in an industry that's worth billions of dollars and also sets the cultural tone for our entire country because we all watch movies and it's a big part of our pop culture. So it's not just like people like movies about dudes, I guess. It's that women and people are, of color are being shut out of this industry pervasively across every level of it, from the Academy Awards to who's hired as directors to who's hired in writing rooms to who's hired as actors. Women and people of color are being shut out of that. And when they're let in, paid less and not and not appreciated as much um, as white men in that field. And so it's not just an issue of like, well, who cares about the Oscars? To me, I look at this and I say, this is an issue of job discrimination, pervasive discrimination within a within an industry that's really important. So I hope that the Oscars are a time for people to reflect on that. And we can see we can see it when it's on stage, you know, whereas oftentimes that kind of discrimination is invisible because you're not really thinking about who's behind the camera directing movies or who's writing a movie, but you can see it at the Oscars. You can see it on stage. Right. And and because you know it's it's such a um, an influential visual and and, and it's so pervasive within our culture. So it, it is about like a discrimination within this industry, but this industry like vastly influences our general popular culture, and and it, and also it doesn't just influences it, but it reflects it. Mm-hmm. It reflects like our feelings about like um, how we feel about women and how we feel about people of color and other marginalized folks. Um, like another, you know, sometimes you hear like um, a devil's advocate point of being like, well, um, you know, the Oscars or whoever's being highlighted or uplifted, 
these white people, like they're kind of just reflective of the population of America, right? Yeah, so, we definitely got some comments like yeah, that on our so Facebook page. So we want to talk about like proportional representation. And actually one of the commenters on our Facebook page, I'm sorry if I didn't catch their name, but they provided some really great resources and links to read up <laughs> on. And one of them that I read was like so useful to me for understanding and talking about this, um, like outside of the industry, but as a larger comment about like North America, um, and discrimination and what this represents. It's a piece on the toast um, and it's called Proportional Representation Has No Place in Diversity Discussions by Leonika Vassius. And it's published in 2014. And it's a really great piece because it talks about how like, yeah, sure, in North America, like in America and Canada, there are lots of white people, you know? So some people might say like, oh, it makes sense then that like at the Oscar, there's lots of white people. But when you talk about that, then, you know, it you're not talking about how when white people and white films, because out of the eight best picture nominees, all of those films are centered on white protagonists. Okay. So it's not just that all white best actor, best actress, best supporting actor, best supporting actresses are all white, but even all of the best picture films are focused on white protagonists. So like, this is like, this is a whole new snowflake white, like low for the Oscars. But when we talk about that, it isn't just about representation and how much proportional representation, but when we center whiteness and white voices, then, you know, then we're uplifting that. And, and that's a result of white supremacy, right? Because we're saying that these narratives are more important to talk about. These narratives are more important to highlight. And when we talk about like white supremacy, then we have to see, we have to understand that the white supremacy is um, the result of like colonialism and, and it's like, severe violence on like this country like the land that this country is founded on like the reason why like everything's so fucking white is because like people came here and settled this land and like slaughtered the indigenous folks who were here and then brought over enslaved people right and then there are immigrants who come over who are treated terribly so you know like yeah we can say it's just the oscars it's no big deal but like like you pointed out it is a big deal because it means like an entire industry is uh, perpetuating this systemic discrimination against women, people of color, other marginalized folks. But then it reflects like this larger thing that we're not talking about when, when it's like, it's super white. It's actually a reflection of like colonial violence. Like this, that's like, that was so meta when I read this on this toast piece, I was like, oh, this is, this is real talk because it isn't enough to be like, okay, like, you know, in the United States of America, if like white people make up 70 something percent of the population or whatever. And then like, you know, black folks make up this percentage or whatever. And then we were to do that rep proportionally at the Oscars. That's not the point. The point is when it is so white, and even if it was 70% white folks being represented at the Oscars, like that reflects the history of colonialism, of the violence that is perpetuated on behalf of colonialism and set and like how these folks settled this land and of the continued white supremacy where, you know, we push out these voices and tell people of color that their voices are not important and that their work is not important. You know, it's, and it's so like, when you think about it that way, like my mind imploded, you know, I think about race all the time. It's like, like, that's just one of the, my burdens that I feel like I've put upon myself. But you know, like when you think about it like that, like something that seems trivial, like the Oscars doesn't seem so trivial then because it's, it's a reflection of something that's so awful, you know, like every time, um, white voices and white people's work get highlighted and uplifted. Um, it, it does like a violence to 
like the voices and work of people of color, of other marginalized folks, because like there's a um, concerted effort to leave other people out. Yeah, I think really what this speaks to is what stories get told in our country and what stories get appreciated. And that ties into our history. You know, when you when you read the history of the United States, what perspectives are included there and what perspectives are left out? And the film industry and the films that we watch do a huge part of setting those narratives and saying these are the stories that we're going to tell about ourselves and our identities and our country and what it all means and here's the ones we're going to award and appreciate. And so I think when you look at what films get made and then what films make it all the way to the Oscars and what films win those Oscars, it's overwhelmingly stories that are centered on whiteness. And that's also reflective of the history that we tell about ourselves and the identity that a lot of Americans have as especially white Americans of like, oh, yeah, this this is what America looks like when there's a lot that's being ignored. And, yeah. yeah, go ahead. And, and like and when and when people of color do win these awards, what do they win them for? You know, like Halle Berry, who won, uh, I think it was Best Actor so many years ago. She is she remains the only black woman to win a best like actress award and she won it for a role where she played um it was for a monster's ball Mm -hmm. right where it it wasn't like a glamorous role by any means and then denzel washington i think won that same year and he won it for training day where he played a crooked cop you know when he's has an amazing body of work like forever and wasn't recognized for those roles in Mm -hmm. particular And, and, and like i mean like really think about the fact that like halle berry is the only black actress to have like a best actor award Mm-hmm. out of all of the amazing talented like women of color who work in Hollywood like and and it was like a decade ago it hasn't happened since and it didn't happen for fucking 70 whatever years before that in the academy so it's it's like like who do we celebrate and for and not only who do we celebrate and why yeah you yeah. know what's one thing that I've seen change on this in the past few years is that now a lot more people are talking about it you know it used to just be uh, like bitch, <laughs> there are like feminist places and websites that write about race saying this is an issue we need to talk about it. And now it's in the New York Times and it's in the LA Times and it's like front page news saying, wow, the Oscars are so white. Isn't this a problem? And so I think it's really great that sort of we've been able to push the needle of mainstream conversation to say like, yeah, this is national news that our awards shows only celebrate white culture. Uh, but on the other hand, like the statistics haven't changed, you know, so more people are talking about it now. And I'm really glad that it's become national news and is in these mainstream media outlets. But like the numbers in Hollywood haven't gotten any better. And so I think we both need we need to now get beyond the point of just talking about it and making it an issue and say, OK, what is it going to take to actually change the systemic discrimination that is happening in Hollywood, including in the Academy, to privilege these voices over others? Well, it's like, so, you know, Jada Pinkett Smith made an announcement, a video about how she's not going to attend. Oh, yeah, let's listen to a clip. Here's what I believe. The Academy has the right to acknowledge whomever they choose, to invite whomever they choose. And now I think that it's our responsibility now to make the change Maybe it is time that we pull back our resources and we put them back into our communities, into our programs, and we make programs for ourselves that acknowledge us in ways that we see fit that are just as good as the so-called mainstream ones. 
I'm guessing her partner isn't going to attend Will Smith. And then uh, just, I think yesterday, um, Spike Lee came out saying that he will not attend. And he received like an, a, a special Oscar award not that long ago, too. Um, you know, it's and it's powerful when these influential black artists speak out and say we're going we're not going to show up but in a case like this like it's not up to black artists to say like we have to sit this out because you don't recognize us like if we're really going to create serious change like white artists have to be like oh fuck like like does this award even mean anything when it's like one under the guise of this awful oppression you know i was thinking about this um uh, you know, with baseball statistics, I don't even know that much about baseball. Oh, yeah, how they have an asterisk yeah. next to them now. <laughs> yeah, like if you were on drugs or whatever. I legit feel like all for all these decades of Academy Award winners, <laughs> they need to all have asterisks or like that little cross symbol or whatever the fuck next to their, their little Oscar denotation to be like one under white supremacy. Until we fix this system, all of these Oscars don't mean shit to me because they were all awarded under like the gaze of white supremacy and this like fucking colonial violence. Like, let's talk about it. Let's be real about it. You know, like, but I'm for sure going to watch it because Chris Rock is hosting and, um, and I hope he calls them out, but it'll be really interesting to, to see this. But I mean, yeah, like, I do wonder how Chris Rock as the host of the Oscars this year is going to address the situation. He sent out a tweet after the after the, the nominees were announced saying it was a joke about how the Oscars are the white BET awards. <laughs> and so and so I wonder if he's going to be able to work some jokes into the script or I'm, I'm sure it's pretty tightly moderated and they review everything. So I wonder if he's going to be able to get some words in edgewise there the thing that chris rock has going for him is that he's really influential and he's he has power in the industry and you know people respect his voice and um and i i get the feeling that they're not going to rein him in that much because he's probably literally the only black face that'll show up there because <laughs> he has to he already signed the contract to host the damn thing uh so it'll be interesting to see how he goes about it i like your idea though of putting asterisks next to the awards or just changing the name from you know we think of it as the as the awards show for the best aw- films in the united states but actually it should be the best white male directed films like right. that's that's the caveat like these are the best <laughs> films made by white men about white men yeah voted on by year. white men yes yeah awarded um, by white men <laughs> and so that's the name of the awards show from now on i think is the best white male directed film of the year about a white guy awards I mean, that, that statuette. Is that catchy? Is that catchy? <laughs> I don't think so. That statuette's already like a phallic little man. So, <laughs> you <Just> know. <laughs> All right. Up next, we are talking about cereal. Cereal. Uh, I wish we could pump in the little theme let's, song. Let's pump in the theme song. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why I called it, quote, pumping it in. But because I'm so into, like, I know this works so well. Um so season two of Serial started, uh, was it a couple months ago? And this season is focused on um, U.S. soldier Bo Bergdahl and how he left his post. And yeah. all of the um, like fuckery that ensued afterwards. So, so, Amy, you and I both listened to the first season of Serial, hardcore, every episode. And also it's... Like, it's not just you and me who are obsessed with this show. This was, this is like a game-changing podcast where after Serial came out, so many people started listening to it that actually boosted the whole presence of podcasts as a form of media. And a lot of people got into podcasts by listening to Serial. So Serial is a a game-changing show. It's really set a lot of, um, it's really changed the way that podcasts, I think, are talked about and received and listened to in the United States. Yeah. So Sarah Koenig, the host of Serial. Sarah Koenig. Sarah Koenig. 
Sarah, Sarah Koenig. Yeah. Sarah Koenig, the host of Serial, I mean, and her team did such an amazing job the first season. I mean, it is not without its problems, but it, you know, and it also had that true crime aspect, which really grabbed audiences. And then also had the aspect of like, what is true justice? Mm-hmm. Um, how like um, this uh, judicial system works in this country and how law enforcement works. And so it, it, it was really interesting in that way. And you're following this journey and, and, you know, there's like a man's life at stake. So it has that like the that making of the murderer vibe or vice versa, like making a murder, murderer vibe had a serial vibe. I think so. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the other way around. Um, so it was really engaging in that way. Um, I mean, I was like a super listener. I even went on like the serial subreddit and read <laughs> read the posts <laughs> about people's like theories about what's going on. Um, you know, but there was also concerns that like in a way it, it, it sometimes served to like dehumanize Heyman Lee and her death because it was so focused on like the circumstances of her death and not so much about who she was. I think the podcast tried to do a good job talking about her, but there was also that issue. Um, but to this season of Serial, uh, I can't even begin to explain how bored I was from <laughs> minute one because first of all, Bo Bergdahl, like he's not a man we don't know about. Okay. Yeah. That was my first qualm. Second of all, um, this podcast is being made in production with a film company because uh, Sarah Koenig doesn't even talk to Berg Brogdahl. Like, it, this is all through interviews conducted by somebody else entirely in preparation for theoretically a film that's being made. So now Serial feels like a season-long commercial up for this documentary that's about to come out. Yeah, I think, I mean, what what I loved about the first season of Serial was that it really drew me into a regular person's life that I knew nothing about and a community that I knew nothing about. And it's like, what seemed so cool about it is like, oh, these are just, this is like these stories of these regular people going through something extraordinary and coming into contact with the justice system and all the ways that it doesn't work or is screwed up or has loopholes there. And in this case, I guess I'm a lot less interested in this season because it's not just a regular person whose life I'm learning about for the first time. And I get to see a real insight into um, like a story I knew nothing about. Like I've already read articles about Bob Bergdahl. I know about his case. And also for me, like the world is less interesting. You know, it was in the first season, I think they did a really good job of illuminating the problems with the justice system and with the ways that we prosecute crimes and uh, how lots of evidence can fall through the cracks and um in this case the system that it digs into is the military and the way that the military deals with um with soldiers going missing and the way that the military has has responded to the case of Bo Bergdahl in general and to me I'm just way less interested in that and it's not something that I really want to like devote hours of my life to learning about um so for me it just doesn't it doesn't hit the same mark and it doesn't have the same like level, I think, of questioning and critique that the first season really pushes you to be like, oh, wow, some assumptions I held about the justice system are not true. And in this case, I'm like, I'm just not as surprised or I don't see the same level of criticism. And I, yeah. And another piece about this is like from episode one, my feeling was, oh, so I have to listen to like a dozen of these like hour long episodes about this ordinary white man who made an extraordinary mistake like he really fucked up you know and and it's it's so uninteresting because it's just like oh you made a really big mistake and now we're going to devote all this attention to you and your mistake right when when like we're talking about the oscars but when we see like other people marginalized like 
historically marginalized folks doing extraordinary things like they don't even get talked about but here's a man who made a really huge mistake because he thought he was being really smart by leaving his base um and then this ensued this fallout that ensued and now he's getting all this attention we're like dissecting his motives we're dissecting his experience and everything but like but when it comes down to it this guy like was like so stupid and he thought he was doing something really brave and was unprepared and got caught yeah and then there's another piece about this about because it's like so focused on the military um we hear so like like literally while you're listening besides sarah's voice you hear like just men's voices throughout the whole thing Mm -hmm. you know so it's just like men talking and and there's there's just like this this is like very visceral part of me it's just like i'm just tired of hearing men talking and i'm and it's in particular i'm tired of hearing men talking about the military yeah you know and it's just like a very like base level thing it's just men talking well i think that's that's part of why i don't connect with the story as much and i'm not as into it with this season and i think that serial does so many things really well especially from a journalistic standpoint of really expanding um the world for podcasts and for audio and for changing the way that we tell stories and the way that we listen to stories i do think they do all of that so wonderfully but i'm just like I just am not interested in the story. <laughs> I guess the more I listen to it, the more I just keep thinking about stories I would rather hear and rather be investing that time in. Specifically uh, around the war on terror. You know, like Serial has such a huge platform now. This is the most popular podcast in the United States, I think in the entire world. And I wish that the, as I'm sitting there as a listener, listening to more and more about Bo Bergdahl, I keep thinking, oh man, I wish this platform was being used for uh, for other stories in the war on terror that we haven't heard before, for example, it would be really interesting to hear from people who have been detained in Guantanamo for the last 14 years. I think about Bo Bergdahl being in, in the uh, being captured by the Taliban and being held by them for years, and I keep thinking about the people that the United States is detaining and has been and has been imprisoning in Guantanamo for 14 years now, and how much I would rather hear their stories, honestly, right. and how their stories never get told, and. That's just one example of other stories that I'm thinking about while I'm listening to this being like, oh, I wonder about that person. I wonder about that person. I'd be interested in hearing uh, from from more people um, in Afghanistan and in Iraq and in other countries that are affected by the war on terror. I'd be more interested in, in hearing stories from the people who live there than from the soldiers who are who have occupied there. Right. And because uh, one of the fears that I had while I was listening uh, was I was like, like, how are they going to talk about? Um, the, the Afghanis there or like the people who live there you know because like and the people who capture Bo Bergdahl and how they treated him because then we get this like really one-sided point of view of like like this is who they are but um this is how they treated him like they're these monster people but it's like he made a really terrible dumb mistake and we're giving him this huge platform to talk about his experience but then the people who capture him are like like painted as two-dimensional people but like but but also thinking inwardly as like you as a united states military like we capture people all the time but mm-hmm. we treat ourselves with like nuance and how we tell our stories of being kept captors you know but we do we give that same nuance to bo bergdahl's captors no like they're just told as like these men who like isolated him and like fucked around with him and and like um didn't treat him really well so like there's this balance of like how are you going to talk about these folks yes they're the taliban they're like awful awful fucking people but you know but but do you want to uh, perpetuate stereotypes about like who um who afghanis are who muslims are right like like do you talk about other people who were like in the towns in which he was captured no you know you're just talking to bo Bergdahl and talking about his experience and his perspective and it is so 
boring. Oh my gosh. Like, you know, while you're talking about like different things to explore, like I, I was I'm sitting over here with like, you know, that eyeball emoji. Yeah. Like, yes, let's do that. I was like, I was like eyeball emojiing until my eyeballs fell out. <laughs> well, maybe I'll come. I, so I think I'm going to stop listening to, I don't know. I can't decide. I can't decide if I should stop listening to Serial for the season and come back next season and see what story they focus on then. Sarah, I think I think Serial stopped listening to Serial because they just came out like this past week saying like we're doing it every other week now. Oh, really? Yeah, because I'm like, you guys are bored of the story. <laughs> You're like, we're tired of telling it because it's so boring. Like, like, like only only like this boring white man soldier can make a story of getting captured by the Taliban feels so boring. <laughs> Like how? <laughs> okay, well, Cyril, I'm excited for season three. <laughs> okay, we're at the end of the show. At the at the end of the show, we share one thing we read, one thing we heard, and one thing we saw this week. Mm, do you want to go first, Amy? Yeah, sure. Um, so I read this really great essay by uh, writer Monica Sock. She's a poet. And, um, oh yeah, you're into poetry now. Yeah, I'm this is part of your poetry. new poetry thing. Yes, and uh, she's a well-regarded poet, celebrated poet. Uh, she's also a Kundiman fellow, and I'm also a Kundiman fellow. I've never met her, but I feel like I'm. I'm you know, I did. I was never like in the Greek system or whatever in college or any kind of like sorority. Oh, like fraternity. fraternities yeah. or sororities. So like, this is like my my nerd version. Of it. And Kundiman <laughs> is is a is a fellowship for for Asian American writers. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I feel like I've never met her. I don't know her, but. You know, we got to think. You're basically in the same sorority. Yeah, we're like BFFs. Uh, (laughs) um, She wrote this amazing essay on Vida. Um, So it's at vidaweb.org. And Vida is um, like a literary arts organization where they talk about um, like the role of women in literature. And they do what's called like the Vita count every year, where they count like how many women were published, um, how many women of color were published, to talk about representation and like who gets their voices heard. Yeah, they actually go through like the New Yorker and the New York Times and count up bylines yeah. and break down the statistics on who gets published. Um, it's really illuminating. And I'm so glad for the work they do because you can be like, you know, I think, you know, I think women are underrepresented in media. And then they're like, yes by this percent in every publication. Here are the numbers. Yeah. Uh, so they also have like a great blog series kind mm-hmm. of thing going on. And um, and one of the recent essays that came on was by Monica. And the title is On Fear, Fearlessness, and Intergenerational Trauma. And in this essay, she explores how um, being a child of Cambodian refugee immigrants, like um, how she deals with it in her writing and as a poet. And it's really beautiful and talking about how um, I think that uh, myself as a child of refugee immigrants, like, y- you know, like this this tension between um, how do I talk about myself and my history um, sort of like without re-traumatizing um, the people who lived it, like our parents. Uh, and and it's, it's really gorgeous. And then, she, you know, she talks about how uh, there's this notion of like being fearless and doing your art, you know, and she realizes that um, being fearless for her and doing her art means to go towards trauma and that's not necessarily something that she wants to do because it's fucked up and like how you wrestle with that as an artist and 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 especially if you want to do that work but like how to do it in a work that won't be traumatizing Hmm. it's so beautiful and like and it, it doesn't offer like answers per se but it asks like really good questions and it puts into perspective like the struggle that like different artists might have with talking about like their own selves and their histories and the people in their lives and how it influences their work. What's her name again? Her name is Monica Sock, S-O-K. And it's at vita.org? Yes. Check it out, please. 
Um, okay, one thing I watched this week is the documentary After Tiller, which uh, came out in 2013 initially, but is now on Netflix, uh, which means I am watching it, <laughs> which is uh, this documentary After Tiller looks, um, the name comes from, of course, Dr. Tiller, who was a provider of late-term abortions, who was assassinated um, and by right-wing, this right-wing extremist. Um, and this documentary looks at other late-term abortion providers and their lives and how they go on providing abortions despite um, violence, harassment, threats, as well as, you know, political policies that make it harder and harder to do the kind of work that they do and why it's so important for them to provide abortions and this life-saving um, care for a lot of women. Um, so check it out after Tiller on Netflix. I think it's really well done and it's a really good portrait especially at a time when there's so much horrible rhetoric around abortion and reproductive rights. This week we debuted a new music video from the artist Tina Asili y La Banda Rebelde, and they're an Albany, New York-based group um, that sort of fuses Latin music, re reggae, with really upbeat vibes. And this song specifically, it's called Freedom, is about anti, it's an anti-incarceration anthem, and, and Tina uh, wrote it as a Black Lives Matter anthem. Um, it's a really powerful song and a cool video. Yeah, and I really appreciated that when you posted this on bitchmedia.org, um, the lyrics are in the post and mm -hmm. also in the article talking about the artist. So you can like really understand the words of the song and like the meaning behind it. Yeah, so let's play this song. It's called Freedom. Um, and you can go check out the video, read the lyrics, bitchmedia.org is where it's at. Freedom! Thanks for listening and take the survey. Oh yeah, take the survey. Yeah, because it's in soon. <laughs> freedom, 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 freedom. our freedom thieves, let's make community, destroying our family, leaving no opportunity. Racial caste alive and well, now we're called a criminal, and we're seen disposable. Millions stuck in America's head, cannot eat the mist they fed. I take cages, trillions spent. Thanks for listening to Backtalk. This podcast is hosted by Sarah Merck and Amy Lamb from Bitch Media. The show is produced by Alex Ward. Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you, not some big corporation or a deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org slash podcast. And be sure to mention Propaganda or Backtalk when you donate. We'll read some of our listener love on the air during the next shows. Thanks so much. Freedom of the mind, freedom of the soul, freedom of the heart.